0: by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? What are some things standing in the way of being the best version of you? For a lot of people, life, your past, and sometimes your current situation can cause roadblocks in your life. Mental health is incredibly important, and so many, including myself, can benefit from talking to a professional and working to dismantle those roadblocks. That's why I'm excited to talk to you guys about BetterHelp. BetterHelp knows no two people are the same and will help to assess your personal needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. These incredibly convenient appointments are in a safe and completely private online environment, and you can start chatting with your new therapist in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. You can message with your counselor at any time and get a timely response, plus schedule weekly video or phone sessions, which means no driving to an office, no waiting rooms, and no awkward small talk. Just meaningful sessions with experts who specialize in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, family conflict, LGBTQ matters, grief, and so much more. There is truly someone there for everyone. And BetterHelp is committed to finding your perfect match, which means if you and your counselor don't mesh for whatever reason, they make it easy and free to seek someone new if needed. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and with financial aid available and access worldwide, they truly make it easy for anyone to seek the help they need. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash morningcup. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When at least police arrived, like they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Cop of murder. In 2012, I, like many others, found myself sitting in a dark movie theater just before midnight awaiting the beginning of the newest Batman movie. About five minutes into the movie, excitement filling the air, the screen went black and everything went silent. A storm had blown in and much to our disappointment, we walked out of the theater with a refund ticket in hand and having no clue what happened to Batman and to Bane. A few hours later, we heard about the devastation that happened in Colorado that made our little blackout seem like a bizarre blip on the radar. On December 13th, 1987, the man who caused that devastation, the man who dominated the news feeds that night, was born. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. James Egan Holmes was born on December 13, 1987 to a mathematician and scientist for a father and a registered nurse for a mother. Nothing about James's childhood, as far as I could tell, screams killer in the making. But after moving back to San Diego at the age of 12, something inside the young boy started to change for the worse. He began declining socially in a time where friendships mean a lot developmentally and, according to his lawyer, started to exhibit signs of mental illness that seemed to reach ahead when he was just 11 years old, and he tried to take his own life. James would later tell of a deep fear he carried for an entity that he called Nail Ghosts, who would hammer his walls deep into the night, and of the shadows and flickers he saw in the corners of his eyes that fought each other with weapons. Despite the battles he seemed to be dealing with internally, James was able to graduate high school in 2006 and work as an intern at the Stock Institute for Biological Studies, a place where his supervisor would later describe him as stubborn, uncommunicative, and socially inept. Regardless, James received his BS in neuroscience with highest honors at the University of California Riverside, was a member of several honor societies, and was in the top 1% of his class with a nearly perfect GPA. With the issues of his childhood a thing of the past, or at least that's what it seemed like, James went on to work as a counselor for children in the summer of 2008, and in the fall of 2010, started working at a pill and capsule coating factory in San Diego before entering his PhD program at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora in 2001. Despite co-workers calling him strange and antisocial, things seemed to be going really well for James Holmes. Now living in a one-bedroom apartment in Colorado that he decorated with superhero, more specifically Batman memorabilia, James created a profile on both a dating site and a page called Adult Friend Finder, describing himself as, quote, quiet and easygoing on his rental application. According to a few sources, he also hired sex workers to keep him company in his new state, leaving reviews of their work on online message boards after they left. In October of 2001, James began dating a fellow biology student, but their relationship lasted only a few months. She claimed she felt distant from her new boyfriend following an encounter between James and another man who spoke with her during a date, and was put off by his flat, expressionless comments about wanting to kill people. Although she claimed she never took any of his offhanded jokes seriously, she tried to encourage him to get professional help, but James declined. They rekindled their relationship in early January of 2012, but were broken up again by that February. This time, James went to get the help that she suggested and met first with a social worker who, after difficulties in interviewing him due to his prolonged silence as he stared off into the distance, later wrote the following, "'This is the most anxious guy I've ever seen, and he has symptoms of OCD, but most concerning is that he has thoughts of killing people.' though I don't think he's dangerous. They believed he was on the verge or had already begun a psychotic break. Over the course of three months, James saw a psychiatrist a total of seven times, each time rejecting their suggestions for a treatment. Then in June of 2012, he sent one of his doctors, Dr. Lenny Fenton, a threatening email that forced her to activate a threat assessment team to help come up with a course of action. She relayed her concerns about his long standing fantasies about killing people, his reluctance to discuss his plan or give a timeline, and his refusal to allow them to talk to anyone else. She attempted to reach out to his mother to ascertain if this was a new or existing problem, and she explained her son's long standing social issues. They again offered him treatment, but James left on his own accord. His final diagnosis was Schizoid Personality Disorder with two rule-outs, Schizophreniform Disorder and Autism Spectrum Disorder. While all of this was going on, James's academics, which seemed to be the one thing he had complete control over, started to decline. And three days after failing a key oral exam, he completely withdrew from his school. It was also around this time that James Holmes purchased a Glock 22 pistol, a Remington 879 Express Tactical shotgun, a Smith and Wesson M&P 15 sport rifle, and over six thousand rounds of ammunition, all completely legally and with a background check being performed. On July 19, 2012, James mailed a notebook detailing all those thoughts and plans they were so desperate to find out during his sessions plans on how to finally end the human lives he had been dreaming about for over a decade, and made a call to a crisis hotline hoping someone would talk him off the ledge that he was teetering on. The notebook was found in an undelivered package in the medical campus mailroom and the phone call disconnected after just a few seconds. So he moved forward and on July 20th, 2012, James Holmes walked into the Century 16 movie theater in Aurora, Colorado into the midnight screening of Dark Knight Rises playing in Theater 9 and watched about 20 minutes of the film before getting up, going out to his car, grabbing his gear, coming back to the emergency exit door he had just propped open, set off tear gas grenades, and shot wildly into the crowd of about 400 patrons. Dressed head-to-toe in tactical gear, complete with a gas mask, load-bearing vest, and helmet, James, while listening to techno music through his headphones, took aim at the distracted moviegoers who, at first, simply thought he was a man dressed in costume or playing a prank for publicity. As the smoke filled the air, James fired his 12-gauge shotgun first at the ceiling and then at the audience who was gasping for breath. He then switched out to his Smith & Wesson, which eventually malfunctioned, and finished out his rampage with his 40 caliber Glock. As he shot at the back of the room, people started to take off down the aisle to try and escape becoming his next target. A bullet at one point passed through the wall and hit three people in the adjacent theater who were watching the same movie. Alarms started to go off and people in surrounding theaters started to evacuate. In total, James fires 76 shots that night, killing a total of 12 and injuring 70 more in what would later be called the deadliest shooting in Colorado since the Columbine in 1999. Police arrived within 90 seconds of the first 911 call as those who escaped started to flood Twitter with news of the shooting and ambulances struggled to tend to the wounded in all of the chaos and congestion happening in the theater's parking lot. At 1234 a.m., Officer Jason Ovia apprehended James Holmes behind the theater with no resistance. He was initially mistaken for a police officer due to all of his riot gear. James was calm as they placed him in the back of the squad car, watching the aftermath of his destruction with his freshly dyed red hair as, according to some sources, he called himself the Joker. When searching his car, police found more weaponry as well as spike strips that James later admitted were to be used if the police started to chase him. He also admitted to booby-trapping his apartment with explosive devices and the police later confirmed this. As he casually relayed his plans to the police, James explained that he chose the midnight showing hoping that there would be fewer children present, having no desire to take such young lives, but did choose the Century 16 because it had doors that he could lock and increase the number of casualties. He went on to say that while it was an option, he chose not to commit his rampage at an airport out of fear it would be confused as an act of terrorism, saying, quote, terrorism isn't the message. The message is, there is no message. He was, of course, arrested and placed in jail where he made several attempts on his life. James made his first of many court appearances on July 23, 2012, and while being appointed a public defender, stood there in a, quote, dazed and confused manner, never once looking at the judge as he spoke. A few days later, he was formally charged with 24 counts of first degree murder, 116 counts of attempted murder, possession of explosive devices, and inciting violence. He waived his right to a preliminary hearing, and on August 9th, his attorney requested more time to assess James's mental illness. On September 19th, the prosecution filed to add 10 more charges, bringing his total count to 152. And on November 14th, his lawyers filed an emergency motion to delay the pre-trial hearing, citing an unspecified condition that left James unable to appear in court. It was granted, and James made several more attempts on his life. Finally, back in court on January 7th, 2013, members of the jury and court listened as the 911 calls and videos from the massacre were presented as evidence, while James's attorneys fought to prove that he was too mentally ill to be held accountable. A few days later, the judge ruled that the evidence was sufficient enough for James to face trial on all 152 counts, and his plea hearing was delayed until March. On March 27, 2013, the defense claimed that James would be willing to plead guilty to avoid the death penalty. But on the 27th, the prosecution came back saying that they were not ready to accept his plea and claimed the offer was a deliberate ploy by the defense to further delay the lengthy trial. By April, the prosecution announced their intentions to seek the death penalty, and by May, the defense filed their intent to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. That June, the presiding judge accepted the plea of insanity, and on August 3, 2013, James Egan Holmes was transferred to the Colorado Mental Health Institute. He was transferred back to jail 17 days later. After more delays requested by the defense, Jury selection finally ended on April 15, 2015, with a total of 19 women and five men serving as jurors. The trial finally and officially began on April 27, 2015, with testimonies from survivors, arguments whether the found notebook proved premeditation or further mental illness, and interviews with a psychiatrist who, after 22 hours with James Holmes, declared he was mentally ill but legally sane. James's attorneys tried to call for a mistrial, but the judge refused his request. On June 9, 2015, the trial came to a sudden halt when three jurors were dismissed by the judge for violating orders to refrain from talking about news reports regarding the trial. And two days later, James's attorneys requested the dismissal of a fourth juror after her brother-in-law was shot during a robbery the previous day. She was dismissed the next day, and on the 17th, a fifth juror was dismissed after the judge found out she personally knew a wounded victim in the shooting. After the prosecution rested their case, the defense showed two more videos of James behind bars at the jail, running and slamming his head into the wall, as well as lying naked, tethered to the bed, attempting to cover his head with a blanket. At that, they rested their case. On July 16, 2015, after more than 12 hours of deliberation, the jury found James Holmes guilty on all 24 counts of first-degree murder, 140 counts of attempted first-degree murder, and one count of possessing explosives, as well as a sentence enhancement for crimes of violence. On August 17th, after testimony from James's sister and father begging for his life and a clemency rejection, James Holmes was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole after the jury failed to unanimously agree on a death sentence. He was formally given 12 life sentences as well as an additional 3,318 years on the 26th. On December 4th, 2015, a judge ordered James to pay in restitution for the victims, $103,000 of which would be paid to them directly and the rest to be placed in a compensation fund. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to A Terrible Thing Happened on December 14th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember... Stay safe.